Hi, everyone. Welcome to this bonus episode of the History of English podcast. This is a little bonus episode between regular episodes. I know that many of you are at home trying to pass the time and eagerly awaiting the next episode of your favorite podcasts. And I've gotten a few requests for an early release of the next episode. But unfortunately, I can't complete a regular episode much quicker than my normal schedule allows. So I decided to put together this bonus episode to tide you over until the next regular episode is ready. Very often, when I'm putting together the episodes, I have little bits and pieces of information that get left out due to time or simply because the information doesn't fit in with the overall narrative. And that's been the case over the past couple of episodes. So I thought I would organize some of those random bits of etymology and present them here in this bonus episode. But before I begin, let me take this opportunity to make a few quick announcements. First of all, for those of you who are looking for more content, let me remind you that I also have a Patreon page, and as of last week, there were 47 bonus episodes there. They cover a variety of topics, and I may even include a few of them in this regular feed over the next few weeks. Patreon works much like a monthly membership, and a $5 contribution gets you access to all of the content there. But it's important to keep in mind that there are no long-term commitments. You can cancel at any time. So if you just want to sign up for a month or two while you're passing the time at home and then cancel, you can certainly do that. Secondly, I wanted to let you know that the organizers of the Intelligent Speech Conference in New York last year have decided to do another conference this year. But in light of everything that's going on, they're going to do it online. Last year, I had the chance to meet quite a few of you in New York, and this year I'm going to be part of it again online. So you don't need a plane ticket or a hotel room if you're interested. A lot of your favorite podcasters will be participating, and I'll be giving a presentation followed by a Q&A session, and I may also be appearing on a separate panel. The details are still being worked out, but I wanted to give you a heads up if you're interested. You can go to intelligentspeechconference.com for more information. Again, there'll be a lot more details over the next few weeks as everything gets finalized. Next, I wanted to let you know about a new podcasting app which features the History of English podcast. It's called Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M. And what makes this particular app so interesting is that it focuses on educational podcasts. All of the podcasts featured on the app have been hand-picked by the people who put the app together. And those designers are mostly the people behind the Sound Education Conference, which has been held the past couple of years in Boston. Now, this app is not a generic podcast app with tens of thousands of podcasts. It's specifically focused on podcasts that feature educational content. And you can use the app to listen to podcasts and to discover new podcasts. And each podcast also has a discussion room where you can communicate with a podcaster and with other listeners by posting comments and asking questions. And again, it includes the History of English podcast. So if you're looking to discover some new podcasts, or if you're just looking for a new way to access some of your favorite podcasts, check out the app. Again, it's called Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M. And lastly, I recently had a chance to speak with the guys who do the Southern Fried Philosophy podcast, 
we talked about the history of English, and more specifically, we talked about the roots of the Southern accent, or the Southern dialects of American English. So, if you get a chance, you might want to check that out. Again, it's the Southern Fried Philosophy Podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. So, with that, let's turn to this episode. And, as I noted earlier, I had several bits and pieces of etymology that didn't make it into the past couple of episodes, so I thought I would present those to you here. If you've had an opportunity to listen to the last two episodes, you may have noticed that I sped up the narrative a bit. I covered about a half century of history in those two episodes, from around the year 1400 to the 1450s. And that period took us from the beginning of Lancastrian England through the beginning of standard written English in the office of the Chancery, up through the invention of the printing press in the middle of the century. And since I sort of zoomed through that period, I didn't have time to discuss a few common terms that were recorded for the first time during that same time frame. One of those terms is the word turnpike, and it appeared for the first time in English in a poem about Henry V's military campaign in Normandy in the years 1418 and 1419. You might remember that Henry V was the second Lancastrian king, and he was the warrior king who won the Battle of Agincourt, and he ultimately conquered much of northern and western France. A short time after the victory at Agincourt, he found himself in Normandy, trying to capture the Norman capital of Rouen. And a short time after that siege, a poem was composed by a man named John Page called The Siege of Rouen. Page was apparently present at the siege, and the poem purports to be a first-hand account of what happened. In one of the passages, Page gives us the first recorded use of the word turnpike, but he didn't use it in the modern sense of a highway or a toll road, like the New Jersey turnpike. Instead, he used it in the original sense of the term, as a barrier formed with pikes or sharp wooden poles. Here's the passage first in a literal modern English translation. Our king commanded with his cry, in harness and armor every man to lie. Outside the border of his host, he made a ditch at great cost, marked with stakes that would persist, with turnpikes and with many a fortification, guns good and bows readily bent. They were laid in many passages now in the original Middle English. Your king commanded with his cree in harness every man to lia, with oath on the border of his host, a mara ditch of great cost, picked with stacks that wall to Paris, with turnpikes and with money and airs, going as gorda and ready benta, they were laden in many went. So, in that passage, Page describes the preparations that were made for the siege, and he mentions that turnpikes were constructed. A turnpike was a fence or barrier made with pikes or sharp poles. A pike was a common weapon by itself. It was a long wooden pole, usually with a pointed metal head. And in this case, the fence or barrier was made with pikes protruding from the top to prevent men on horseback from crashing through the barrier. So that explains the pike part. But why was it called a turnpike? 
Well, it was because a turnpike was usually like a big turnstile. It usually had a vertical pole that stuck into the ground and served as an axis, and that allowed the barrier to be turned. So if someone approached the barrier and was given permission to pass, the turnpike could be turned to allow the person to go through, thus a turnpike. So from that original sense of a barrier that restricted passage, the word later came to refer to a road or a stretch of road where permission was required to pass. And in the modern era, a turnpike came to mean a toll road, a road that required the payment of a fee to access it and pass through it. The term was once common in Britain and North America, but it's much more common today in North America, especially in the northeastern part of the U.S. Now, the sense of the word turnpike as a road or a stretch of road also survives in a very common phrase or expression. If you say that something is coming down the pike, you're really just using a shortened form of the word turnpike. So if someone says something like, that's the craziest thing to come down the pike in some time, they're literally saying that it's the craziest thing to come down the turnpike or the craziest thing to come down the road. So thanks to that process, we went from pike, meaning a pole or stick, to turnpike, meaning a gate or barrier, to turnpike, meaning a type of road, then shortened back to pike again, now meaning just a road. So that's why pike can mean either a sharp pole or a road in modern English. It all has to do with turnpikes, which were mentioned for the first time in the early 1400s. Now, a lot of people are familiar with the phrase coming down the pike, but they don't tend to use the word pike to mean a road outside of that phrase. And in fact, a lot of people don't even realize that the word pike means a road in that phrase. So, given that confusion, it isn't surprising that some people change that phrase so that it makes more sense. You might hear some people refer to something coming down the pipe instead of coming down the pike. So they substitute the word pipe for pike. And you can probably understand why some people do that. Since we don't normally use the word pike to mean a road, the original phrase doesn't make much sense to a lot of people. So they replace pike with pipe, which sounds similar and which has a logical meaning of its own. We would naturally expect something to come down a pipe. So it makes sense that some people would make that change. Well, linguists have a term for that type of word substitution or rephrasing. It's called an eggcorn. And I recently did a bonus episode about eggcorns at Patreon, and I specifically mentioned this example in that episode. But I just wanted to note that coming down the pipe is just a variation of coming down the pike, which itself literally means coming down the turnpike or road. Now, speaking of eggcorns and linguistic confusion, the word pike has also given us another example of that phenomenon. Pike is ultimately a French loanword. It was pique in French. And French also had a word for a type of digging tool based on that same word. It had a long wooden handle with a pointed metal head. The French called it a picasse. But when English borrowed that word, English speakers were a little confused by it. Since it had a long wooden handle and a sharp metal head, 
it apparently reminded many English speakers of an axe, which is a native English word. So those speakers converted picasse into pickaxe. The original French term picasse can be found in English in the 1200s and 1300s, but by the early 1400s, we find the anglicized term pickaxe for the first time. That was around the same time that turnpike popped up in the language. Again, pickaxe is what linguists call an eggcorn. It's an unfamiliar word or phrase that's altered by some speakers when they reframe it in more familiar terms. Now, I should also mention one other aspect of the French word peak or pike. You might remember from the most recent regular episode that the word has a connection to playing cards. In that episode, I mentioned that a French legend holds that a knight named Laire designed a deck of cards that's the basis of the modern deck that many of us use today. The legend also holds that he invented the card game called Piquet. It was the first really popular card game in France, and the name is derived from the word pique or pike. And you might also remember that the card suit that we call spades in English is actually called piques in French. They apparently associated the leaf symbol of that suit with the fancy iron head or decoration that was often found at the end of a pike. So they just called that suit peaks or pikes. So the word pike was being used in a lot of different ways in the early 1400s, in both English and French. And around the same time that the word turnpike was popping up in English documents for the first time, another popular expression was making its first appearance as well. That was the expression to curry favor, meaning to impress someone or to gain their favor. So when that phrase first entered English, what exactly did it mean to curry favor with someone? I mean, we've come across the word curry before, but it usually comes up in the context of food. Most of you probably know that curry is a type of Indian food, but that's a more recent loan word from the languages of southern India. And in a recent episode of the podcast, we saw that the word curry was once used to refer to cooking or the preparation of food. You might remember that the oldest surviving English cookbook was called The Form of Curry, meaning the form or manner of cooking. So what does currying favor have to do with cooking? Well, nothing. The word curry in the expression to curry favor is actually a completely different word. It's actually a loan word from French that meant to rub down a horse with a comb. It's found in English documents as early as the late 1200s. So, what does rubbing down a horse have to do with winning the favor of someone? Well, the answer lies in a popular French story of the Middle Ages called the Roman de Favel, literally the romance or tale of Favel. That was a well-known story about a horse named Favel who wanted to move out of the barn he lived in and move into his master's house. His wish eventually came true and his fame spread. It was assumed that the horse was an important lord, so various noblemen and clerics came to pay homage to him. They all bowed down to Favel and groomed him. And this was done in an effort to gain favor with the horse. So they curried Favel literally combed Favel. 
And in fact, this story was so popular that the word favel passed into English in the 1300s as a general term for horse. By the early 1400s, we find the phrase to curry favel in English documents. It harkened back to that well-known story about the horse named favel. And even though to curry favel literally meant to comb a horse, it was used figuratively to mean to gain favor through flattery. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, that usage is found for the first time in the year 1420, which is the same year as that poem I mentioned earlier that gave us the word turnpike. But this expression in the early 1400s was to curry favel, not to curry favor. So what happened to cause that change? Well, this is yet another example of an egg corn, a case where linguistic infusion caused people to substitute a familiar word for an unfamiliar word. By the 1500s, English speakers were still hearing people say to curry favel, but they no longer knew what favel was. The story about favel the horse had largely faded into history, and people no longer understood that favel referred to a horse. Since the phrase to curry favel meant an attempt to gain favor, it was only a matter of time before people started to replace the unfamiliar word favel with the much more familiar word favor. And by the mid-1500s, we can find the phrase being rendered in its modern form as to curry favor. Over time, the original phrase was completely lost from the language, and today we just have the phrase to curry favor. Another word that was first recorded during this same time period is the word patter. We use it to refer to a type of speech that's rapid and repetitive. It's the type of speech used by a salesman or a carnival barker. Well, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first known use of the word in English occurred in the 1420s. The word was formed within English, but it was actually derived from a Latin term, a very common Latin term at the time. It was derived from the Latin name of the Lord's Prayer, the Paternoster. So, let's look a little closer at the Lord's Prayer. The modern English version of the Lord's Prayer begins with the words, Our Father who art in heaven. But the first two words were reversed in Old English. So, in Old English, it began with the words, Fare ur, literally, Father our. And that original word order was a direct translation of the Latin version of the prayer, which began Pater Noster, again literally Father Our. This actually harkens back to one of the very first examples of a sound change that I gave in the podcast. Early on, I talked about the P to F sound change that took place in the early Proto-Germanic language. And I gave the classic example of the English word Father and the Latin word pater. Pater retains the original Indo-European P sound, and father has the Germanic F sound. But they're ultimately two different versions of the same Indo-European root word, meaning father or male parent. So, the Latin version of the Lord's Prayer began with pater, whereas the English version began with father. But since Latin was the primary language of the church in the Middle Ages, it was common for people to recite the Lord's Prayer in Latin. And even for a lot of people who didn't speak Latin or didn't speak it very well, they could recite the Lord's Prayer in Latin. 
Since the prayer began with the words paternoster, it simply became known as the paternoster in English. But here's the thing. A lot of people who recited the prayer didn't really know all the Latin words or what the Latin words meant. So they just repeated this very rough version of Latin that sounded like a bunch of random words and sounds put together. And since they were supposedly repeating the paternoster, that type of random, repetitive speech became known as pater. And the word first appeared in English in the 1420s as a verb, to pater. And a new word was coined within English, from the Latin name of the Lord's Prayer. The early and mid-1400s also saw the first use of a trio of other words, the words budget, average, and peculiar. And all three of those words have something in common. They're all associated with money, property, and finances. The word budget appeared in the mid-1400s, but it didn't have its modern meaning as a financial ledger or a collection of receipts and expenditures. The word was borrowed from French as budget, and it originally meant a pouch or bag. It's related to words like bulge and belly, and those words invoked the image of a stuffed bag. So a budget was originally a bag, especially a portable bag that people stuffed documents into. And from there, a budget came to refer to a wallet. By the 1600s, the word meant a bag or pouch stuffed with money or financial documents. And a century later, the meaning of budget shifted from the bag to the contents of the bag. So it came to refer to the kind of financial documents that one might find in the bag. And specifically, it came to refer to a particular kind of financial statement, a statement of projected receipts and expenditures. But it all began with a word for bag or pouch in the mid-1400s. The mid-1400s also gave us the first recorded use of the word average. Now, today we think of the word average as a mathematical concept, a specific calculation made by adding several different sums together and then dividing that amount by the number of individual items that were added together. Well, that's not what the word originally meant. It originally referred to a type of tax. It was a tax or duty levied on goods that were shipped by sea. The original French word was averie. Now, for those people involved in maritime shipping, that tax or averie was a basic concept of doing business. And in the year 1451, the word appeared as average with the same meaning in an English document. Over time, the meaning of the word was extended to the other costs and losses associated with shipping goods by sea. So it came to include not only taxes and duties, but also losses incurred due to lost goods, damaged goods, and even damage to the ship itself. Those losses had to be apportioned between the owner of the ship, the owner of the cargo or goods being shipped, and the insurer who insured the goods. By the 1700s, the word average was being applied to this process of allocating the losses between those various parties. And that gave us the modern sense of the word average as a mathematical calculation. But again, it all goes back to a word from the mid-1400s that referred to shipping losses. Now, I began this discussion by noting that the words budget, 
average, and peculiar were all recorded for the first time in English in the mid-1400s, and they all had an association with money or property or finances. Well, that seems pretty obvious with regard to budget and average. But what does the word peculiar have to do with property or finances? Well, if you're familiar with the word pecuniary, you can probably start to see the connection. The Latin word pecu meant cattle or flock. And in the ancient past, a person's wealth was measured by the size of his or her flock. That Latin root word ultimately produced the word pecuniary, which is used to refer to money or money wealth. So an accountant or business manager is someone who deals with pecuniary matters. Well, the same Latin root also produced the Latin word peculiaris, which meant the cattle or property owned by a particular person. So it was essentially your personal wealth, the items that belonged solely to you and no one else. And from there, the meaning of the word was extended to refer to anything else that was unique to you. And that was the meaning of the word when it entered English in the mid-1400s as peculiar. So today, we no longer associate the word with a person's money or wealth. We think of it more broadly as any attribute or feature that's unique and specific to an individual. And we sometimes think of it as a quality that's odd or strange or unusual. But the word originally referred to a person's individual wealth. And it first appeared in English around the current point in our overall story of English in the mid-1400s. And before I conclude, let me mention one other word that's recorded for the first time in the mid-1400s. And it's a great English word that should never be overlooked. It's the word hogwash. It originally referred to table scraps given to pigs and other animals. It especially referred to liquids and watery leftovers. And that's apparently why it was called hog wash. You might remember from a recent episode of the podcast that people in the Middle Ages ate a lot of soup and porridge. So the table scraps tended to be dumped into a bucket or pail of watery leftovers, and they were then given to the pigs, thus hogwash. The first reference to hogwash occurred around the year 1450 in a document which used the following line. They in the kitchen, for jest, poured hogwash on her head. In the original Middle English, it reads, Die in the kitchen for Japa, poured on her head with hogwash. By the 1700s, the word hogwash was used to refer to any kind of liquid or drink that was of poor quality. So, bad beer or wine was sometimes called hogwash. And then, in the 1800s, the modern sense of the word emerged when people used the word to refer to anything that was worthless, or of poor quality. It was especially used in reference to a statement or idea that was worthless or ridiculous. So today we can conveniently dismiss any idea that we don't like by referring to it as hogwash. And we don't even have to pour a nasty liquid over someone's head when we do it. Again, it's a word that first appeared in English in the mid-1400s, around the same time that Johannes Gutenberg was inventing the printing press and the Hundred Years' War between England and France was coming to an end. So, I'm going to conclude on that note. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. Look for the next regular episode of the podcast in a couple of weeks or so. And in the meantime, I hope all of you stay safe and healthy. 
And as always, thanks for listening.